very much. And uh, I would also like to add my thanks for uh, the tremendous hospitality and uh, generosity of the organizers who brought us all together for this occasion. So uh, thanks once again. <clears throat> One of the great cultural achievements of the modern age has undoubtedly been the vast attempt to recuperate the cultural and spiritual legacies of earlier civilizations. An investigation carried out by generations of scholars over the past two centuries or more. No doubt a part of this enterprise has been the restless desire to compensate for the alienating effects of modernity and its globalizing sequels. The search for authenticity in the past includes the fundamentalist quest for the original purity of religion in the absolute authority of scripture, as one sees in neo-Salafi movements in Muslim contexts. But there are also more cosmopolitan attempts to engage with the past, and such a motive has played a, an important part in the scholarly study of the great Andalusian Sufi, Mohiuddin ibn Arabi, since the early 20th century. In this article, I'd like to present an analysis of one of the most original, recent interpretations of the thought of ibn Arabi, proposed by the Egyptian scholar Nasser Hamad Abu Zaid in his important Arabic study, Thus Spake Ibn Arabi, Hakada Takallama Ibn Arabi, published in 2002. Abu Zaid there develops a literary interpretation of Ibn Arabi that attempts to deal with some of the key problems of modernity, particularly in terms of religious pluralism and the relationship between religion and the intellect. I should add that the significance of Abu Zaid's argument needs to be appreciated in relation to the persecution that he himself has suffered for his academic writings. Abu Zaid's major scholarly contributions have been in the realm of the literary interpretation of the Quran, to which he has devoted several major studies in Arabic. And I will not read all the titles, but simply uh, assure you that he has a remarkable uh, contribution to the study of the Quran. Uh, as well as contemporary reformist thought in Islam and an autobiographical account uh, as well. But Abu Zaid's interest in Ibn Arabi is nothing new. In fact, his doctoral dissertation was written on the topic of Ibn Arabi's mystical interpretation of the Quran. Uh, this was entitled Falsafat al Ta'wil, the philosophy of uh, interpretation. And I just learned that Dr. Jehan, who presented a paper yesterday, has completed a Turkish translation of this uh, important early study by Abu Zaid. So I am sure Turkish readers will appreciate that when it appears in print. Subsequently, as he is, himself has documented, Abu Zaid, as professor of Arabic literature at Cairo University, encountered a concerted campaign of persecution from Egyptian authorities on the basis of his scholarly work, particularly on the Quran. His website, briefly summarizes the result as follows. In 1995, a Cairo appeals court ordered Abu Zaid divorced from his wife on the ground of his alleged apostasy. With his wife, he has been living in the Netherlands since. End of quotation. He presently holds the Ibn Rushd Chair of Humanism and Islam at the University for Humanistics in Utrecht. By his own account, he studies modern Islamic thought by critically approaching classical and contemporary Islamic discourse 
in the field of theology, philosophy, law, politics, and humanism. The aim of his research is to suggest a theory of hermeneutics that might enable Muslims to build a bridge between their own tradition and the modern world of freedom, equality, human rights, democracy, and globalization. This is Abu Zaid on his own activities. Thus spake Ibn Arabi, invokes by its title the famous work of Friedrich Nietzsche, Also Sprach Zarathustra, as the author himself has acknowledged to me in personal conversation. It was in that work that Nietzsche proposed some of his most characteristic themes, including eternal recurrence, the doctrine of the overman who transcends morality, and the will to power. Using a fictionalized Zarathustra, or Zoroaster, as a spokesman for his own critical philosophy. Abu Zayd does not go further than the title in invoking Nietzsche, and in truth, his book demonstrates a personal engagement with Islam and the Sufi tradition that is far from the profound alienation from religion that is articulated by the German philosopher. Nevertheless, the explicit reference to Nietzsche's work may indicate that there is a similarity insofar as Ibn Arabi, like the fictional Zarathustra, stands for Abu Zaid as the model of the philosopher who provides a liberating teaching but leaves it to those who follow to advance to the next level rather than staying to assume a position of authority in a traditional sense. Uh, I'm going to skip over a brief outline of the uh, table of contents of the, um, of the book. Uh, I just want to say that I'm going to focus on uh, the third and fourth chapters to investigate the topics of religious pluralism and the relationship between religion and intellect. Uh, now back to the introduction of the book. The introduction opens with a vivid description of the ritual of chanting the recollection of the names of God, Victor, an essential Sufi practice. Abu Zayd recalls his Sufi-minded Uncle Hassan, whose dream of the Prophet Muhammad was instrumental in pointing Abu Zayd towards the study of Sufism. So the book opens with symbolic gestures towards Sufi initiation. From the beginning, Abu Zayd has approached the subject from the perspective of the problem of intellect and spirit in Islam, which he feels can be resolved by the category of spiritual experience, which I will return to in a moment. Though he wanted to take up the study of Ibn Arabi while in Egypt, Abu Zayd was only able to accomplish this when he received a fellowship to study at the University of Pennsylvania, where he was able to devote the serious time needed to read the works of Ibn Arabi. It took him two years to read the uh, uh, Futuhat in its totality. At the same time, studying works on philosophy and religion, ranging from Origen, the early Christian theologian, to uh, Gadamer. Having devoted over two decades now to the study of Ibn Arabi, Abu Zayd asked himself whether the Andalusian master could be considered modern. A sort of answer came when he discovered, to his surprise and delight, that there were circles of readers in Europe and America, such as the Marhiyuddin Ibn Arabi Society, who demonstrated a strong contemporary interest in the Sheikh, even to the extent of distributing audio recordings of the poetry of Ibn Arabi. At this point, Abu Zayd breaks into a, a citation of the famous 
verse by Ibn Arabi, my heart has become a receptacle of every form, which concludes with the celebrated couplet, I follow the religion of love. Wherever its camels turn, love is my religion and my faith. Abu Zayd observes that indeed, love is the root of his religion. Abu Zayd concludes his introduction with several final comments. First, without alluding to his persecution in Egypt, Abu Zayd mentions the publication of the German translation of his autobiography in 1999 and an invitation extended to him uh, by a German publisher requesting him to write a new book on Ibn Arabi which would be more suitable for a general readership than his doctoral thesis. Abu Zayd actually began to write the book in English for the sake of convenience in translating it into German, but he quickly realized it would be better to write it in his native Arabic somewhat to the discomfiture of the publisher. Second, Abu Zaid was delighted when Professor Anne-Marie Schimmel, the celebrated authority on the study of Sufism, offered to translate the book herself from Arabic to German, although this unfortunately did not come to pass. I should remark parenthetically that this was a remarkable offer since Professor Schimmel ordinarily maintained that she didn't really understand Ibn Arabi, but she liked Abu Zaid's approach so much that she wanted to assist in any case. As a third point, Abu Zaid relates that he completed the book in June of 2001, only a short time before the events of September 11, 2001, which, as he remarks, reverberate in the preface that follows. While Professor Schimmel was to him an example of faith in the unity of human civilization from the perspective of spiritual experience, the contrary and highly ideological notion of the clash of civilizations was predominating at this point in Europe and America. In his only reference to the book's title, Abu Zaid says, thus spake Ibn Arabi about civilizations, cultures, and religions. This is the subject of the book which I was honored to introduce to the Arab reader. And the book finally appeared in Arabic in 2002. In his preface, Abu Zaid turns to the question, why Ibn Arabi today? It is here that he presents his brief analysis of the factors motivating the spiritual quest, particularly the anxiety, the high technology, and the injustice that are such prominent features of modernity. He relates the enlightenment to cultural uh, relativism, the rise of individuality and capitalism, and these in turn are linked to the colonial mentality and the binary opposition between the civilized and the barbaric. He remarks that the response of the Christian churches to the Enlightenment was to turn outward in the form of missionary activity, naturally arousing an anti-colonial feeling. At this time, Islam became, as he puts it, a spiritual capital that supplied the revolutionary symbols for the struggle against colonialism. So Islam became a kind of local formula for seeking justice. Thus arose a case of local cultures arrayed against the global north, since the global market has become the new god. As might be expected, Abu Zaid cites the writings of Fukuyama on the supposed apocalypse of capitalism and the fulminations of Huntington on the clash of civilizations. Abu Zaid describes the current status of Asian civilizations as in conflict with modernity, although he does not raise here the general topic of fundamentalism as a revolt against the ideologies of modernism. He depicts secularism as the new religion of market and power, which brooks no resistance. For him, the god of secularism is like Dracula, 
a mighty idol that is immune to traditional religion. Here, Abuzaid raises the problem of the return to religion in today's environment, but which religion? Religion has taken on a social dimension of duty, but it also contains the inner dimension of spiritual experience. He sees Sufism as a revolt against the religious establishment, a tendency distinct from the formal disciplines of theology and law. Now, Abuzaid sketches out the position of Ibn Arabi between his predecessors and his adherents. He notes, his connection to world heritage, and referring to the studies of Izutsu and Asin Palacios, he comments on the profound impact of Ibn Arabi on other thinkers. Ibn Arabi is important both for preserving his lost predecessors through quotations in his own writings and for his impact on later Sufi tradition. The appeal of Ibn Arabi, like that of other figures of spirituality in every culture, is the model that he furnishes of spiritual experience as an inspiring resource for our world today. In this respect, the arts offer a similar solution as well. Abu Zaid cautions, however, that Salafi control poses an obstacle to the quest for spiritual experience, as likewise the mass media that represent Islam as anti-modern and terrorist. In this dual attack from inside and outside, the elements of philosophy, theology, and literature have been excised from Islam, so that only terrorism and the veil remain. In such a situation where the clash of civilizations has become government policy, intellectuals are striving for dialogue. The two main purposes for studying Ibn Arabi are thus to free the contemporary Muslim intellect and simultaneously to show another face of Islam to non-Muslims. Let me turn briefly to the category of spiritual experience, since this forms an important concept in Abu Zaid's approach to this topic. In chapter one, which is a brief biography of Ibn Arabi, he raises the question of the beginning point of Ibn Arabi's spiritual career. Uh, Dr. Claude Das, from whom we heard a, a very nice paper yesterday in her monumental study of Ibn Arabi, uh, has been followed by other scholars in using passages from Ibn Arabi's writings to suggest that his fundamental spiritual experience took place during a retreat that occurred as early as the year 1184, the same year in which he encountered the philosopher Ibn Rushd, and also the date of his entry into the path. This is an astonishingly early date for this spiritual formation, given that he would have been approximately 15 years old, or 20 years old, if we follow Osman Yahya's dating of the meeting. Many accounts of this early retreat have been phrased in a hagiographical tone, suggesting that Ibn Arabi at this time attained a vast spiritual knowledge through unveiling without the benefit of study, which he would be elaborating for the rest of his life. While noting this information, Abu Zaid focuses instead on a different autobiographical account in which Ibn Arabi relates an event from his youth when he participated in a hunting expedition seeking wild onagers he discovered that he could not take part in harming the animals and therefore refused to hunt. Abu Zaid observes that this episode demonstrates the inherent goodness and compassion of Ibn Arabi's heart and that this attitude was not dependent upon formal religious faith. Ibn Arabi later explained that it was by adding mystical knowledge to his goodness of heart that he intuitively recognized the divine secret in all. 
So in bypassing the hagiographic description of the youthful retreat of Ibn Arabi, it seems to me that Abu Zayd has chosen to represent him in a less esoteric fashion than usual. He depicts the crucial moment in Ibn Arabi's development in terms of a universally accessible moment of compassion rather than from a mystical gnosis uniquely granted to Ibn Arabi. From a methodological point of view, it's noteworthy, uh, and I'm going to summarize this section here just to save a little bit of time, that Abu Zayd uses the category of spiritual experience uh, to signify a direct expression of unmediated encounter with divine realities without benefit of any rationalization or translation. And I would just like to remark that the term experience has a history, going back to the Renaissance and uh, an anti-authoritarian uh, uh, flavor. And uh, there's been a lot of recent discussion in religious studies scholarship to analyze this category and not simply to take it for granted as a self-evident given of, uh, of actuality. So there's, there's a claim of authority and an element of persuasion in, in all these accounts. Um, Abu Zaid is well aware of the role of rhetoric in his discussion of Ibn Arabi's narrative, for instance, of his encounter with Ibn Rush, though at times he is ready to invoke spiritual experience as being beyond question or analysis. And here I think Abu Zaid's appeal to spiritual experience contains a powerful rhetorical challenge to the authoritarian ideologies of modernity. Uh, nevertheless, Abu Zaid's analysis of the language of Sufism as a dialectic of clarity and obscurity, as he puts it, directly acknowledges the rhetorical character of mystical language. In, acknowledge, in addressing the issue of Ibn Arabi's attitude towards religious pluralism, which is so poignantly evoked by the poem of Ibn Arabi quoted earlier, Abu Zaid in chapter 3 in fact argues that our consideration of Ibn Arabi does not place him outside of history and geography. As a counterexample, he mentions the example of Henri Corbin, who maintained that the only means of understanding Ibn Arabi is to become for a moment his disciple, to approach him as he himself approached many masters of Sufism. Corbin further maintained that objective knowledge of Ibn Arabi is impossible, since one only knows the form that Ibn Arabi manifests to the degree of one's spiritual capacity. Abu Zayd uh, agrees up to a point with this reverential attitude, but he is not willing to suspend any relation to time and belief. And in the end, he feels Corban is too close to Ibn Arabi. One must dive in with comprehension and master Ibn Arabi's language and spiritual experience, but without excessive adoration. And I would add that in the academic study of religion, one should take precisely the same kind of approach to Ibn Arabi as one would to any other religious figure, despite or even because of his reputation as the greatest teacher, a Sheikh al-Akbar. The issue of religious pluralism becomes especially acute for Ibn Arabi in light of his letter written in the year 1212 to the Seljuk ruler Kaikaus I on the proper way to treat his Christian subjects, which, as Ibn Arabi advised, included enforcing restrictions on non-Muslims dating back to the time of the Caliphate such as the prohibition against wearing arms, riding horses, rebuilding churches, conspiring against Muslims, etc. 
Abu Zaid goes into great detail to provide a political and historical context for this letter, which seems to go very much against the grain of tolerance and pluralism that is associated with Ibn Arabi's mystical writings. Abu Zaid points out that the departure of Ibn Arabi from Andalus took place in the context of major Christian military campaigns against Muslim authorities, that is, the Reconquista in the Iberian Peninsula and the Crusades in the Eastern Mediterranean. Slightly earlier, Ibn Arabi had advised the Sultan Kai Khosro to watch out for bad government and corruption, another case of practical political advice. Abu Zaid explores here the meaning of religion as an ideological weapon that begets fanaticism, so that a conquest of Muslims by non-Muslims becomes a, a problem for a thinker like Ibn Arabi, and inevitably the parallel case of European colonialism in the 19th and 20th centuries, which is not stated, uh, irresistibly comes to mind. In a similar fashion, Ibn Arabi in the Futuhat, writing before Saladin's conquest of Jerusalem, wrote a testament forbidding the performance of pilgrimage in Jerusalem while it was under the domination of non-Muslims. Abu Zayd remarks that such decisions by Ibn Arabi were, in a sense, contrary to Sufism and caused by the pressure of politics. Abu Zayd further criticizes Ibn Arabi for indulging in a triumphalist reading of history, according to which political or military victory signifies divine approval. After all, he notes, God's promise in the Quran that the believers of Mu'mineen will have victory is not necessarily directed only to the Muslims, since the promise is given to those who believe, which includes Jews and Christians, rather than those who profess divine unity, that is, the Muslims. Ibn Arabi offers no explanation for the defeat of Muslims by non-Muslims, and he remains impatient in his rebukes to heedless kings. Thus, there remains a tension between spiritual experience and its historical and political context. Now, I'm going to have to summarize uh, the last section here, uh, which deals with um, the encounters of Ibn Arabi with Ibn Rushd, uh, which Abu Zaid breaks down into four different categories. Uh, and I'm going to simply uh, summarize this by saying that, particularly in the recollections that which Ibn Arabi wrote 30 years after the event, uh, Abu Zaid distinguishes between Ibn Arabi the narrator and Ibn Arabi the protagonist of the story. And he remarks on the literary and uh, political aspects of this encounter and treats it therefore as a literary construction rather than a recording of factual events. And indeed, it is a, a, a story which places Ibn Arabi himself in a very powerful position against uh, the great uh, philosopher. Uh, whose point of view we do not hear. So, um, <clears throat> to conclude, um, Ibn uh, Abu Zayd himself does not provide a formal uh, summary or conclusion to his book on Ibn Arabi. The fifth and sixth chapters concern the metaphysics of the divine names and the inner interpretation of the prescriptions of the law. In a way, these two chapters project once again the contrast between the philosopher Ibn Rushd and the mystic Ibn Arabi, the metaphysics and the law, upon a larger screen, so that the problem of the relationship between the intellect and the spirit is left open for the reader to reflect upon. I believe that is where Abu Zayd wants to leave the reader, in a state of ambiguity. 
To be sure, his analysis of the crisis of modernity is cogent, and the dilemmas of colonialism and its aftermath are still potent. But for Abu Zayd, the solution is not to be found in authority. And so even Ibn Arabi is not to be elevated to a position of command. Instead, readers who are capable of picking up the hints will need to take the responsibility on their own, much like the Mahdi's helpers or the disciples of Nietzsche's Zarathustra. <laughs>